Hello and welcome to another episode of Midiara Meets, where we speak to all kinds of people who work in sound and music. On the show this time we've got Omunit, who is based in Bristol in England and he makes a fantastic selection of music under various different names uh, and he's released on Goldie's Metalheads, uh, Mike Paradinas' Planet Mew Records and D-Bridge's Exit Records. Uh, he's a former Scratch DJ, uh, he's also worked in Community Music, which we've talked about, and he's just released a new album called Acid Dub Studies, which I totally recommend you check out. Thanks very much for all the support of the podcast, uh, it really means a lot to see people all over the world listening in. Really got to shout out the people in America who listen in, uh, people in Germany, people in Britain, and across the world. It's great to have uh, such a diverse selection of people listening. But enough of that, let's get on with the show. And the first question I asked on Unit was about his musical beginnings. I guess uh, I have to think now, it's been a minute, but um, I think being probably 10 or 11 and seeing a pair of drumsticks in a, in a shop somewhere, I forget, I was actually somewhere in Wales, weirdly, and... I don't know what, I think it was on a scout, I was in the scouts, I was on a scout trip and there's this shop and there's this pair of drumsticks and for some reason I just kind of knew, I was like, yeah, I want to do that like, and just got a pair of drumsticks and then I was at school, learned, I, I realised I could learn drums so I actually started playing drums quite young, um, 11, 12 years old or something like that, got lessons and stuff um, and then a few years later I think a friend of mine just put an earbud in my ear and it was a dreamscape cassette and it was like that then I discovered hardcore and it kind of just all went south from there <laughs> but, you know um but I was what 13 14 at that time and um yeah I started making jungle and hardcore and later on garage hard house all sorts of stuff through the 90s just as yeah hobby as a kid you know um, but that's mm. my that's how I kind of discover music if you like from from a you know technical perspective um yeah my sort of early entry was i guess dj culture from from quite early on yeah and what were the first things that you were hitting the drumsticks with yeah <laughs> the sofa i used to sit on the, the on the sofa and play on the sofa arm and i i used to play along to like whatever cd's my mum and a boyfriend had it was like um you t yeah you too rattling hum I used to drum along to that a lot dire straits and steely dan and stuff like that you know because there was no other music around or saw doctors i don't know you know um but then i knew you know i've been a kid in the 80s as well though i, I mean I mean, this is the thing i'm having to really dust off the memories now so actually yeah being a kid in the 80s and being around a lot of um, kids on the estate where I grew up, sort of different stuff. I mean, I remember hearing the Beastie Boys for the first time. It must have been Brass Monkey. I think it was Brass Monkey. My mate's older brother, you know, was really into that. And yeah, you kind of, if you actually look at, um, look back at sort of 80s TV, there's, there's a hell of a lot of synthesis and like weird synthesis stuff, I think, in kids' TV programs and sort of adverts and stuff. So I think that played a huge part in perhaps my ear I don't know 
but definitely yeah yeah synth in a lot of sort of sci-fi programs I remember like things like the Thunderbirds. I think we, we're fairly similar age, so we must have been growing up at the, a fairly similar time. And um, yeah, like things like Thunderbirds and that sort of space age sort yeah. of stuff was really synth heavy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm 41. So yeah, Thunderbirds, uh, <laughs> that was great. He-Man, I always remember the laser from He-Man. <laughs> and, that, and actually, what was it? Uh, I think Flying Lotus used to use it as a jingle in his like kind of live sets that he was doing i thought that was amazing um nice yeah <laughs> i don't know yeah there's a lot of you know i'm a nerd for to a certain degree for sound design and synthesis and stuff and so i think to a certain degree a lot of uh there's a lot to talk about in terms of i think not that people want to hear that too much but yeah the 80s and kind of experimentalism and and tv companies putting money into research and audio research if you like you know, from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop onwards. And yeah. Yeah, I spoke to uh, Null Sleep a few uh, weeks ago, who's a chiptune artist. Right. And um, he was talking about a film called Electric Dreams, which was an 80s film about, it was a love triangle between a couple and a computer. <laughs> and it just sounded like the most amazingly 80s Wait, uh, is, film. Is it, it's not, it's not an arcade machine, is it? Was I it? don't think so. Electric Dreams. It's um, it's a, like a feature film. Oh wow, a, a yeah, bit like a bit like the film Her, and he was talking about it, and I was just like, oh my god, it just seems like that is the zeitgeist of the eighties. Uh, they've done a remake with Brian Callen, actually, the oh, guy, yeah. guy that played uh, Heisenberg, right? Um, yeah, Phil Oakley and George Romero. That's a that's a pretty powerful team. I know. And I can not believe I've never okay. heard of it. And it's Philip K. Dick as well. So yeah, okay, that's a powerhouse. Oh, hold on, yeah, because now this is on um, on uh, Channel Four. They had it on. I need to watch that. Oh, actually. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, going off on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I think that will encapsulate our dual appreciation of eighties. Mm. We like weird sounds, people. <laughs> That's it. We're eighties babies. We grew up on strange, strange noises and Doctor Who. And I remember Doctor Who with Sylvester McCoy. That was mildly terrifying. Some of it. As a young, as a young and yeah, whippersnapper, really ominous, yeah, ominous, like the soundtrack alone. Um, but like, yeah, the puppetry and the the weird characters, you know. <laughs> yeah, you can't help. I think you can't help but be if you're middle aged at this point, like us. You know, it's kind of um, yeah. There's there's a synths play a large part of your sonic landscape. I think yeah, definitely. And what was do you um that you you mentioned a dreamscape tape. Yeah. Um, that you listen to. Um, yeah. Do you remember any sort of artists that you listened oh, to man. in those yeah. days, the tape pack days? I mean, everyone's got their stories about tape packs. I mean, it's, it's, you know, my favorites were people like Easy Groove, Slipmat, um, Dougal. I like the happy hardcore, like early happy hardcore, actually. But then the, on the jungle side, I loved, you know, DJ Hype was probably my favorite. Um, and then, yeah, Fabio and Groove Ride, obviously. Obviously, I mean, yeah, goes without saying. And Randall as well. I think those those kind of that was some sort of my faves. You know, I never I could never afford tape packs. So I used to borrow and just copy them off my mate. <laughs> but yeah, they're amazing things, weren't they? In like these big yeah, sort of, um, what are they vacuum sort of vacuum formed plastic. Well, yeah, I mean, and they were amazing because because I grew up like in a little village. Um, near to Maidenhead in Berkshire, a little village called Cookham, and that's where I lived for 
you know, I've lived in Marlow and all over the place before that. My mum was a bit of a nomad, but I'm a small town kid, you know, if you like. Um, although, you know, in the compu- in the commuter belt now. Um, but back then it was pretty rural, you know. It was like where I lived, it was the whole sort of village was clustered around a couple of big gas towers and it was that was it and you were sort of in the middle of nowhere and this idea of like the rave scene was this thing that happened in big scary London and kind of yeah so there's a sort of imagination so our our experience of it was was tape packs and then occasionally a bit of radio you know so it was kind of this sort of mystique about it in a weird way definitely did you have pirate radio as well were there any Sort of local not really, man. Because not really. We, there was something like West London. There was the odd one that used to come out of like Wickham or something like that. You could maybe catch it, but not really. To be honest, there was. I remember there was one called Snapping FM. I don't know. I've tried to Google it. It's not really talked about that much. But uh, I don't know where they were based. But but yeah, I used to go buy records at the um, the record basement in Reading. I was really young you know, going in there, but it was cool because they let you smoke fags. So I used to just sit, just sit and smoke cigarettes, and with my mate, and just sort of with a fiver, you know, kind of, and just buy one record after being there for about two hours. That's, <laughs> yeah, I used to buy a lot of jungle and drum and bass and stuff. And then also, I've got to shout out the Hard Edge Records, or it was called Shoebox Records in Maidenhead, above mm-hmm. a skate shop. The skate shop's still there. It's called Hard Edge, and um, it was run by a guy called um, SDR. He had a label called Shoebox Records. Um, there's some quite sought after records that he did with um subsonic it was a, he used to run that shop so i used to go buy records there as well so that was another sort of thing as well i was collecting records from about 94 95 nice man yeah. yeah and i think i think you're right in saying like um like yeah you, you could spend two hours in a record shop because there's so much you could uh, wasn't how was that as like an education in music like going to a record shop and hanging around with people i just thought it was really cool you know, or no, I, no, I don't know. I don't think I think I thought I was cool. I thought it was the coolest place to be. And I just thought I was like, this is, oh, I'm a grown up now. You know, this is life. This is what it is. And it's not much has changed, except maybe it's not so cool. <laughs> it's just progressively like, less cool. It's, yeah, progressively <laughs> less, less and less cool and more. I don't know. It's just, um, I, I mean, I love, I love record shops actually. And, and, I still collect records and and kind of redis- I've rediscovered it probably a bit a bit more since I moved to Bristol about um, six years ago now and um, I don't know I, I collect more like ambient records and sort of yeah dub albums and more weirder stuff and I support a lot of the local artists here just buying cassettes and stuff that people put out here and I like this idea of a locality again something more local having sort of been fairly global if you like with with what I've done with Om Unit um, over the years. So, yeah, but I don't think it's cool anymore. I don't know. I just enjoy it. That's the good thing to get into, right? Like you approach middle age, you stop trying to be cool, and just 100%, uh, yeah, and just, and just try, you know, get into wholesome things. Like um, I've just had a vegan sausage roll, actually. Okay, that's cool now. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, um, so when you, uh, I guess, like the records maybe influence you wanting to to make music in some way what did you start out making music with yeah um i started out with a uh, tracker software because again we weren't you know poor but i certainly couldn't afford <laughs> at 14 years old i couldn't afford an atari in a, in a you know an akai sampler but so i had uh we i had like an old pc like um i think it was a 386 
SX or something like that. I think it was called. Nice. And um, yeah, so I used to I used to run Scream Tracker. It was called. Um, the same mate of mine who was you know um, playing me tape packs and stuff. He told me about this software, and you just ran it off a floppy disk. It was like <clears throat> samples had to be smaller than forty four kilobytes or something stupid, and there was a whole this is the early days of the internet as well so there was this bbs world um which is like dial-up um pre-internet browser type stuff um and it was called the it was called the demo scene so people would like upload you, it's equivalent of like uploading your ableton live um set onto a, onto a server and other people just download it so they can see your whole thing and to listen to it they would have to literally play the program um, that's how I started out and um, it was all coded in hexadecimal and really fiddly but you can get pretty fast with it and uh, so people that know about music production and stuff like Renoise is the the modern day equivalent of that um, vertical kind of um, hexadecimal style coding uh, but yeah yeah again um, again really fantastic. really really not cool stuff you know no, i think it is cool <laughs> well i have to i have to be honest and say i'm very well connected to the renoise team i've been using renoise for maybe 15 years oh yeah no renoise is cool like so i love it <laughs> you know renoise is cool i don't know screw tracker is like whew, i mean it is nerdy though like it is i mean i think that's the, the one of the things that um when nerds, appeals to people about trackers is that um it just looks so different compared to your normal DAW, what you expect. Um, it terrifies. I mean, I, for, I, you know, I don't talk about it much on, on my sort of artist socials, if you like, but I'm, I'm a teacher. I've been teaching for the past three years in a university in Bristol. And uh, I've shown some of my students that, you know, this is what I used to use and they just look, they're like terrified, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It is terrifying. Um, I have done two Renoise tutorial videos that you'll find online, both of which are becoming my most popular videos. Um, Great. And um, yeah, I'm going to do a part three soon and also like a, a tools video for like plugins for Renoise. That's cool. um, but yeah, it is exceptionally uh, off-putting when you see it for the first time. But I think what <laughs> what has to happen is if you hear some great things coming out of it, um, it can do phenomenal things that a lot of programs can't do or would take a long time to do, like re-triggering, re-triggering a sample point. Yeah. Um, all that sort of loop. Sample the offset. You, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, maybe we'd, let's talk a little bit about your teaching. Um, what, what do you sort of what do you teach? So I actually teach music production in various forms. So there's different modules that we teach at BIM, um, and I work there part time. Uh, it's something I started doing three years ago because honestly, the touring aspect, um, the landscape, you know, changes so rapidly with touring, and there's a certain expectation. For example, in America, which we you know I was going to a fair bit that you're kind of supposed to um, scale up, you know, like you're kind of, it's supposed to be this trajectory to the stars or something, you know, and I've never wanted to play anywhere else really than, you know, small cap venues. It's, it's, it's uh, I know I'm realistic about what I do and what I play. And I, what I noticed is that um, in a way, like, 
there's always another generation coming through and I sort of started to feel like, okay, well, I'm getting offers for gigs that I don't want to do and le- and sort of less offers for gigs that I kind of do in a way. So I was like, well, let me just seize the ball by the horns and stop, you know, being tempted into just doing X, Y, and Z um, creatively because I kind of knew already that it was like, this is going to kill my creativity. And um, I had an opportunity to, to get into teaching at this place um by the way i should say you know i taught through my 20s i was a youth worker so i worked with like kids in london that either were in danger of going to or coming back from youth offending um institutions so i used to do a lot of um yeah pretty tough stuff um in london music with them yeah 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 doing like yeah yeah, music production workshops and stuff like that um not always the most successful but you know i think there was a there would have been some seeds planted, I think. Um, and that was through 100%, the... hundred percent, man. Yeah. So I, 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 I was actually doing that before I started the Om Unit project. And um, in a way, I, me turning 30 and starting the Om Unit thing was was a uh, me saying to myself, I need to give this a proper go. And uh, yeah, so I did that for quite a while now. And it's uh, I'm super happy with it. But yeah, che- yeah te- teaching, teaching being a, a sort of a new challenge, actually, and something I feel I can really offer young people um real world advice and kind of experience from actually having done some stuff you know definitely yeah it's been, um, it's been good yeah i i think community music is um uh, uh like a totally undervalued um part of society and a lot of people don't know about it um very very long ago i interviewed uh, hannah from soundcastle which is um a, a community music company based on the southeast of england where i am brighton and worthing and um, yeah, it's it's amazing work. And I've done a little bit of it myself and I've experienced similar things where it's very challenging work. Sometimes you are dealing with very difficult um, situations and uh, volatile, yeah, volatile relationships and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it's really commendable that you that you did that. And um, yeah, I mean, thanks for saying that, you know, it's um, yeah, I, I'd say I learned a lot more about life. <laughs> You know, been I started that when I was twenty three, so I was twenty three. Um, I became a youth worker. I didn't want to. I had no no other aspirations than to do something involved in music that allowed me to. You know, I've never worked a full time job. I've been self employed now for eighteen years, and um, yeah, that was my first sort of route into kind of actually really connecting with London. Like I learned a lot about the real side of London, the real culture, the working class culture there um caribbean you know afro-caribbean culture um indian bangladeshi all different types of um sort of pockets of uh of london which um perhaps people who come from where i'm from anyway don't necessarily ever get a look in or or any any kind of insight um so yeah that was really valuable actually yeah yeah excellent excellent yeah um i guess community music charities that spring to mind is uh, youth music's probably the main one that I can think sure. of. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, working for agencies. So we were hired to, you know, turn up with a bunch of kit and set up and do stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, it's great work. Um, cause, cause it can be working with like young carers, people who look after their parents, uh, kids who are not mm. in education, uh, enterprise or training. Like it's a really broad spectrum of, of young people who get access to music. Um, when they ordinarily wouldn't have that, absolutely. And there was there was there was quite a lot of that until Cameron came in and pulled the plug. Sadly, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I've heard stuff that it sort of has been creeping back over the past few years, apparently. There's been more of that. Um, but for a while, it was a bit of a dry, dry sort of spell. I think uh, certain things got shut down, actually. But yeah, sadly. Right. Not to and, want to get um, too, too political. Sorry, guys. Too political. That's okay. Yeah, not, not too political. Um, but yeah, it is fantastic work and it, and it does make a difference to people 100%. Um, yeah, but yeah, let's maybe yeah. go back to um, your production and stuff. So when did you... Yeah, what sort of stuff were you making on your tracker? <laughs> so <laughs> bad jungle. <laughs> really bad jungle. I mean, you know, you learn the ropes. Uh, I didn't have anyone teaching me though. Um, so I kind of had to just learn by trial and error and kind of trying to figure out how people did stuff um i used to i used to listen to those dreamscape tapes and think it was live i didn't realize that they were just playing well not just but they're playing records you know um so in a way i kind of yeah i sort of imagined that it was some sort of you know they were on stage with computers and stuff and um but yeah i was making jungle hardcore you know happy hardcore really bad um what else like um Oh, well, I, used to, I did a fair bit of garage as well. Like, I was really into garage early on. Um, I can't remember how I discovered it. Again, I think, I think it was just going record shopping. Like, so, Record Basement in Reading, they had the next door shop, shop next door, which was House and Garage. Um, I don't remember, I think, I, I can't remember what it was called. Maybe it was just part of the Record Basement, but I used to go in there as well. And um, yeah, the really early sort of 4 4 kind of bumpy stuff, nice and ripe, and GOD and um, New Birth and. All that stuff was, yeah. So I used to buy those records occasionally as well and really like Garage. Um, yeah, so we used to go out because where, where I'm from, there wasn't really a whole lot of, uh, definitely not any jungle and drum and bass really that I, I knew about. Maybe in Reading, but we were, we were kind of too young. So we used to sneak into pubs where they'd have DJs and um, used to play pool and stuff. It was about 16, 17. And, um, you know, it was, we thought, of like, you know, God. Got a beer and a fag and playing pool and the DJ's playing garage. This is this is me. I'm an adult, you know. Yeah. Um, just, that's my life now. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a pub in Maidenhead. I forget the name of it, but there was a guy in there who used to play really good garage. And um, so I made a lot of garage for for a little while anyway. But um, yeah, and then obviously got to 18, did my A levels just about, and uh, had to go university, and then basically. Um, went to Hertfordshire so I went to Hatfield for about a year um smoked my brains out failed and then had to <laughs> had to come back home again but uh in that year I experienced a lot I was DJing and stuff I won a competition at university and um I was pretty good I didn't realize how good I was at DJing really I, if I do say so I was like I didn't really have anyone around me that was really into it you know like I had decks I got decks when I was about 15 16 for my birthday very luckily thanks mum <laughs> but yeah I didn't really know much about playing in front of people till I went to uni about 98 and yeah basically was playing house and garage and 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 yeah kind of um trying to think back now um trying to think of good experiences yeah seeing DJs like saw Randall like Tough Jam you know people like that really inspired me back then but yeah Jungle was my, always my first love and um yeah, I used to make weird ambient stuff and down tempo and yeah. I've never been a, a soldier of any scene and I adamantly remain so. I love that. Yeah. I think I think that's one of the most um that's one of the most prominent things looking back through your back catalogue and and like researching this interview, looking at um how you talk about music. 
it is really refreshing for you to um yeah to, to sort of distance yourself from genres in a sense or, and and just um you know it's a funny one feel. man it's a funny one and I, I love talking about it especially on record because um you know i Andrew Weatherall, rest in peace. You know, I was I was at Red Bull Music Academy in 2011, and uh, I got to ask him a question about how important the genres, and his answer was amazing. You know, he basically said, you know, you can be accused of being somebody who is what he called a dilettante. You know, like someone who is like an overnighter. And I know that my experience, for example, with metalheads and kind of working in drum and bass. Obviously, we're forward, fast forwarding about 15 years from where we were just were but you know a few years ago i was doing some fringe drama bay stuff and kind of uh how do i put it like i think in a way certain people were confused as to what my what i was doing you know why you know and some people weren't confused at all and just decided you know kind of you're a drum bass producer and then some people just got it that you just make tunes and i'm just into making music and this is what i'm exploring and um I saw it as just me on the fringe contributing, um, but I never certainly wanted to move in and, and be a part of the furniture. And um, I, I maintain that so because I think it's kind of a privilege. It's actually a massive privilege, um, basically being from where I'm from. Yeah, I've been able to just kind of, in a way, uh, look at things from a from an outsider perspective and and sort of try and remain subjective as way uh, as well in that way. You know, like. Um, at a distance to some degree you know yeah at least in I my think, mind I don't know but yeah <laughs> yeah I, I, I think it's really refreshing because you do tend to find producers will dabble in other genres but really genres is I was trying to like trying to like think of an analogy for this and the only one I could think of was like it's like somebody who always just wears blue trousers all the time just go <laughs> what sort of trousers do you like oh, I just wear blue trousers don't well, like red trousers. Don't you, like it's well. You know what? Restrictive. That's fine though. Like that's the other thing as well. I think people assume that because I'm that sort of producer or or musician or my, that's the mind state that I have. That surely, surely, then I judge people who aren't that way. Um, and it's no, I, it's fine. If you're just into one thing, that's cool. If you're happy, that's what matters. You know. So yeah, if you like blue trousers, wear blue trousers. Fine. There's, worth, there's, there's worse things in life, man. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I think yeah, I think I would true. be I would be I don't know what's the word. It, um, just you just don't like being an arsehole. It's an ass. You're just an arsehole, basically. Aren't you? If you're if you're just judging people for oh, you know, you just make the same thing or oh, it's fucking shit. Like I know there are people who think that way, but that's not me. I just like to do what I want to do, man. It's you know whatever yeah i think that's a good point that's a valid point um yeah. it's for it my it's really for my, my for my health you know it's good for my health i need to keep uh fresh air coming in and kind of it keeps me inspired i think it's just what, what you know i might not have been like a huge success in any one scene or whatever but i think um i'm certainly happy when i come into the studio knowing that i've got an idea that i don't know what it sounds like and that's sort of keep what keeps me happy and keeps me sort of um motivated really yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, what creatively yeah, creatively uh, loads of different approaches work for different people. Um you know, sure. yeah, some people are sushi chefs. That's the way I look at it, right? So if you make sushi, that that, that great movie that uh Jiro dreams of sushi is uh it's like a 
sushi master, right? And he's like, he makes basically the same thing every day and has done for like, whoops, for like 60, 70 years. And um, some people are like that. You know, they want to master and perfect one thing. And I think there's a real, I think that in in some ways is a, kind of more admirable, actually, because you're, you're through the thick and thin, you know, through the all the fads and the crazes and different landscapes politically and within music and sonically and everything you're you're dedicated to one thing and i think that's actually a a a very admirable pursuit but you know i think um there is also a danger of stagnation to that um just in the same way there's a danger to being non-committal um in my position as well so like everything is all balanced I often admire people that do sort of, um, you know, like what might be deemed sort of low level jobs and they love it, you know, like I remember, like I worked, I worked in Russia for a little a while in a school uh, and there was a security guard and he was just a security guard for like a little primary school in the middle of Siberia. Like he didn't really ever have to do anything. And it was a security guy. He was like literally was just the security guard, but he really enjoyed his life. He loved his life and he always had a smile on his face. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I always remember that guy because I, I know for me personally that like I couldn't handle doing that like day in, day out. But he had, yeah, he had this sort of Zen state of he loved it. He loved what he was doing. He knew, you know, he wasn't ever going to get a different job. And um, yeah, I really, I admired, I admired him for doing that for sure. It's all subjective. Yeah. He probably had like a real super rough upbringing or something and he was like you know what this is me now I'm, I am good <laughs> maybe I don't know but you know uh, yeah I think it's all, it's all subjective I think yeah you also talked about never settling on the destination um and instead focusing on what can be learned from the journey I know it's um, such a cliche it's a bit corny isn't it but yeah no, uh, no, it's not. I, I no but I think you know great. okay it, let's say um it's a it's a worn out phrase because I think um, in modern life, you know, modern times that we're in, I think there's so much focus on goals, and I've noticed as actually as a teacher, um, and actually running a label as well, the mindset of people who are so and rightfully so passionate about getting on, you know, getting uh, getting their thing going and, and getting signed and. Or you know, at uni, you know, they're all trying to get, a, they want to get a first. Of course, you want to get a first, and you should set high goals. And we're taught that, and great. But yeah, the sort of with the music thing as well. Like I really realised. I think um, actually, you know, who said something poignant was Scream. That he tweeted is like, it doesn't really start until you've been doing it for about ten years. You know, I think <laughs> you know, which is really on point because you know, his, what his first records were like two thousand four or something, maybe earlier. Um, and I think it was about 2014, 15, and I think he really sort of realises, like, yeah, I'm actually doing this now. Even though he's a key figure in, like, in the in the birth of that dubstep thing, you know, I think he, it's it's kind of amazing to see him say that, and I think that's really on point, you know, like, like for me, I didn't really have a, you know, I got my first record out, to be fair, in, like, 2002, after eight years of making tunes since I was 14, right, um, now these days the the gateway to access in that respect is is nothing like that you know you can just have a digital release 
you could be five and have a digital release. <laughs> you know. Um, and I'd like to hear that, please, actually. But, um, you know, it's sort of... Um, it was different times, but point being is that, you know, in some ways, even though we've got all these access to, to um, direct access to the public and, and that's, fa- that's fantastic, there is a risk of, um, I think, until you really explore enough and and build up a narrative and a story, it sort of doesn't, it, the music itself can maybe lack a bit of substance. I don't know. I think that there's, and there's sort of, staying with the process and trying to be honest as well you sort of build a a much more broad sort of stronger foundation that you can work from and draw from you know um, learning techniques you know and it takes time I think it's good to learn various techniques over time and yeah even though you and and the thing is you end up reaching the goal subconsciously anyway before you know it you suddenly realize oh shit this is what I was trying to be doing 10 years ago you know it's like oh yeah I'm here now I think that and and enjoying getting to from from A to B is is sort of um yeah, definitely where it's at. But yeah, yeah. As, as a it's a cliche term because I think there's so much focus on, especially now with the social media thing of uh, all people see as the end product, right? So there's kind of not necessarily so much talk about the 10 years that came before that thing that you're seeing, you know. 100%. Yeah. yeah um, I spoke to Andrew Huang just before Christmas and... Um, He's great, he- yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. And hearing his story uh, and how his sort of career developed um, is an amazing thing because it almost just seemed like he got dropped into YouTube and here you go, here's this two million followers superstar. But his story was amazing. Like he was selling, he was doing custom songs for people on eBay. Um, People could just email him what they wanted their song about. And he'd, he'd do a custom song in Doomcore, in chip tune in whatever and that's how he started out because he had and then he just became really adaptable he was able to like lyrical content and musical content you just make it up it was just brilliant such an amazing. amazing yeah that is incredible and yeah he's got serious musical chops as well it's uh in, in a way i think he's like a, the ultimate altruist in terms of being an artist because you know like so many people with that level of skill would be so self-involved and and perhaps not necessarily in a, in a bad way, just just they would really be working very hard at being a, a producer, right? They, you know, trying to get those big contracts, and uh, you know, down in Nashville, and and sort of doing it the old school way in some sense. But I love the fact that in a way, he's kind of like bucking. He's completely bucked the trend of like trying to pursue like the career as like a famous person, but then somehow has become famous from being an educator and a kind of general awareness source i think of uh of gear and stuff and it's kind of amazing uh, yeah he is yeah he is really really amazing I, it's I kind of like the actual influencer but like with the best intention you know like i think a lot of influencers are in it for the money and the free stuff but i think he's uh his heart isn't really in the right place man sorry to interrupt definitely no i i totally agree uh, i yeah i think he's an incredible guy um it sort of for some reason just brings me to um some lyrics in one of your songs which was it nothing on self that's about embracing like the bad times and the good times isn't it yeah that's Ryder shafiq yeah. yeah yeah i really enjoyed listening to that track it really stood out to me as like i just love the honesty of that you know and the mm. well um yeah, let's talk about that. I guess um, if we draw the sort of timeline of things, what happened was uh, I was in London and touring a hell of a lot and kind of hit a burnout phase. 
and some stuff happened personally which really kind of I think you know it's a typical story the bad breakup and the move and everything else and so you know I went to I went to Bristol I was like I, I need to leave London I found that I'd, I'd seen so much in London over 15 years I've been living there um, on and off and it was kind of like uh, I needed a new start and yeah part of that new start if you like was when I started writing I started writing straight away I moved to Bristol and I basically wrote a lot of stuff and some of that stuff became self the album and I'd always been a fan of Young Echo um, still am and you know Ryder was one of their main MCs and I always found him such an intriguing character he's a very enigmatic guy in some senses, um, or at least was back then. And I liked the fact that he, I preferred his poetry to his kind of dance hall stuff, even though I love dance hall and I rate him for that as well. But I felt like it, I, I wanted to ask him to say some things which I wanted to say, if you know what I mean. Like I kind of, I, I talked to him a little bit about the idea of suffering. And when it comes to mental health, I mean, I've done a lot of exploration of, of um, different forms of kind of spiritual and psychological theory shall we say and some degree of practice and uh i'm a big big fan of carl jung i think carl jung has a lot to offer society and every generation and going forward as well i think he's an incredibly important cultural figure um and one of the things he talks about is the the root of all mental illness is the avoidance of suffering of legitimate suffering so something inside us we don't want to feel what happens is we end up um kind of projecting the judgment that we have of ourself onto other people and this kind of, yeah, psychological dynamic that yeah, that comes with that. And at the time, part of my therapy, I mean, I've, I've been doing a form of therapy for years called somatic psychotherapy, which is body-based emotion kind of... Uh, and, um, yeah, something really struck me about that connotation. And in a way, I kind of wanted to share that with people somehow in my music, but... Obviously, I'm not, I'm not. I'm no singer or a lyricist. So yeah, just asked Ryder. I was like, you know, can we talk a little bit about yeah embracing suffering? Because now, which has been misconstrued, as some people have thought of it as uh, needless. You know, you you know, you shouldn't embrace your suffering. You know, it's, it's unnecessary. But it's what what it's getting at is the idea of actually facing facing your demons. You know, and kind of um, being fearless about it and knowing that yeah. I could go on for hours about this stuff, but yeah, nothing you could ever feel is anything unique to you. You know, it's uh, it's just a subset of various ingredients that are completely interrelatable. Um, but yeah, yeah, we've definitely everyone's had sort of suffering and, and difficult times, and um, yeah, processing that, but allowing yourself to process it properly and be open about it um, is really important. I think. Well, and again, is you know, societally. Um, it's very important for the creative individual, I think, to have a healthy sense of self, right, as a, just a starting point. And there's, there's, you know, different philosophies about that in terms of the how important the idea of the self is. Um, obviously, in, in some senses, the idea is to go beyond the self in some ways. But before you do that, I think you need to have a healthy sense of where you start from in that re regard. And creatively, um, yeah, and I kind of said it really, you know, we have to a certain degree of responsibility to look after ourselves. But yeah, societally, there's a lot of focus on um, kind of, uh, how do I put it, like happiness, you know, positivity. And it's like, yes, of course, but there's, life has many shades, right? There's kind of, there's, it's not as simple as that. I think suffering is, is 
for it's kind of a natural part of life and i think um it's learning tools about how to actually cope with those things i think a lot of people are actually afraid of um various aspects of who they are um especially in england it's uh i think i actually believe it's it's it's, a, it's a, got a huge amount to do with the nature of the society and where it's going is that a lot of people are, have um obviously become so polarized by fear and kind of paralyzed as well and you know traditionally i think this sort of post-victorian and then post-war kind of spirit of england can be a little bit you know uptight and kind of um people not really willing to actually share emotion and especially men as well you know infuriates me constantly in some ways you know um and so yeah i think um i don't know that's there's a lot in that tune for me but yeah i'm going off on one again but yeah no, no that's great just... man i think it is really important to talk about um this stuff and um yeah no, it, I is. Think... It, it is it is i know um go on yeah i mean um yeah I mean, what would you recommend, say, for example, if someone is, is, isn't is feeling great, maybe someone who's finding uh, their diff- – I don't know. Yeah, I don't know whether it has to be – the example has to be someone who even makes music. But, yeah, is there <laughs> any sort of preparation or any sort of um, – yeah, I'm, no, I'm uh, no expert. Things that have helped you? I am no expert. I'm really not. Um, I can only speak for myself. Um, and I guess – I mean <laughs> – there are people out there whose job is to help, you know, I would, I would always like, like the idea of therapy is so frightening and also so expensive as well, by the way, it's like not everybody has access to that. Um, so it's really, really dependent because there's such a myriad of things that people suffer with, but I don't know if I can only say what's worked for me, which has been very fortunate enough to be able to afford to have therapy and kind of, um, yeah, benefit from it. But I think for me, reading a lot as well was really useful. You know, I started reading a lot of, um, pretty out there stuff in early 20s perhaps not so more on the spiritual side i definitely delved a lot in meditation and i think meditation is a very useful tool um it's pretty vital actually in in some ways i think just just general self-care i I love that self-care has become a sort of a a kind of almost like a meme buzzword in society (laughs) you know especially amongst the younger people it's great um because that term was you know a lot of these sort of terms and terminologies and sort of things were pretty niche you know, sort of 20 years ago. And I don't know, I actually have a, sort of a lot of hope for, for, for younger people, but there's so much noise in the world. I think uh, anything that can help to reduce the noise um, and the dependency on noise and avoidance, using noise, dissociative behavior, kind of trying to limit that to a certain degree. You know, I think any kind of intake, whether it's food or politics or music or, I don't know, it's just taking taking the reins and kind of, um just actually making decisions i think basically i'm big into avoiding stagnation as much as possible that's one thing i'm quite firm about i'm a bit of a minimalist in that sense i suppose mm-hmm. uh, works for me and in the studio too you know i don't keep stuff in this room that i'm not using really um some things i won't let go of because i know they you know i'm probably going to come around and use them again but i don't know what have i got here what sort of things yeah on that, on that note what have you got in your studio well yeah there's, there's basically right now uh, I've got the Lyra behind me, which sometimes gets plugged in. Oh, wow, nice. Uh, I've got an old the Cyclone bass pot, the first version, the, the 303 rip-off one. Oh, nice, with the, which, will rand, the, which will generate like variations. Uh, does it do that? I'd never I think it does, it. yeah. It, it, you can like write a pattern in and then it'll, like, it'll generate a variation of your pattern. Ah, uh, like the ran- yeah, it has like a random, you just give it like an arpeggio. Yeah, um, never actually 
mess with that too much though oh it's great i've messed with it for hours <laughs> days nice um got the i recently got the uh rd8 you know obviously i know beringer is a bit of a hot topic amongst um sort of synth heads you know regarding some of their sort of political past as well um the cork sniffer incident was yeah hugely that, problematic but I, I do like um the timing of that was just before lockdown it was quite yeah it's they gross. sort of got away with it well kind of yeah I, I know that is it ben jordan jordan ben he's got a great youtube channel he, he t- t- took them to task on that and actually their um the kind of synths for kids thing which they've been uh promising and I think they've started to deliver. Anyway, point being is that uh, anyway. <laughs> I sort of feel like I have to defend the fact I have some Beringer kick. That's uh, fine. That's fine. They're That's ruthless fine. capitalists. But, you know, <laughs> I like the fact that you can actually have access to an analog 808 and not be some kind of like loaded rich kid. I, I like the fact that there is a lower barrier to entry for people who don't have money and can actually get hold of a drum machine, you know. So, mm. you know, and so, yeah, I've got a drum machine. And uh, I've got the Zox box. Oh, cool. Uh, which is which is what I made acid dub studies on most mostly. Uh, the OB six, um, amazing analog polysynth, and uh, that's one of my favourite things. Really, um, I've got this great drum machine here, the Mode Machines ADX one, which is uh, arguably got the worst snare of any drum machine, but it's kind of the best. <laughs> But it makes the best rim shots. Um, that's funny. Normally, yeah. I, I, the worst ever. Because there's like the RX21 and the RX17, the, the Yamaha little digital drum machines. And and I always say they've got like, the only good thing about them is that they have a nice snare. Right. But you've got like this the, is the other way around. So maybe that would work. Those two would work really well together. Yeah, yeah. They just If you make the snare really short, it makes a lovely rim, rim shot, like a nice side stick, you know. Um, nice. Other kit, I've got a Access Virus B over there, which is I've had for 12 years or so now. Um, JV2080, TX81Z, uh, Emu Morpheus, which I need to get repaired. Um, and then just a bunch of effects and stuff. Um, loads of pedals and modular effects and this desk here and stuff. miracle of multiple cameras I'm, Chris can now see my whole studio I can describe the scene there's, a, there's like a 12 channel desk you've got is that um, oh that's is that like a Pi phaser pedal I think I saw yeah it's a Pi phase yeah. yeah it's a clone of the Mutron biphase which uh and this is really nerdy but yeah I discovered that they actually licensed it for a limited reissue so Mutron borrowed the schematics for this for, for a very limited version that they did Wow. Yeah, so it's legit, folks. It's, it sounds great. I used it a lot again <laughs> on acid dub studies, and it's super crunchy. You can really, especially if you drive into it and kind of... I've been getting a lot into that whole, you know, obviously the dub aesthetic thing and style with uh, the last album, and yeah, lots of things you can do with these just driving inputs. But yeah, I'll, I'll just move my, my Greg's bag, and you can see... <laughs> Just you know, casually resting a Greg's uh, vegan steak bake on my Electron analog heat, um, <laughs> yes. as you do. I got a, uh, up. yeah, well, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, saturating it nicely. Um, <laughs> big sky, is that a big, big sky? sky. That's a big sky. Yeah, oh, I love uh, a big sky. Yeah, got to shout my friend. Panel. My friend Lewis is a sound, sound designer and a great artist in his own right. Lewis James, um, he put me onto that. Uh, I just got this. Um, 
it's old boss pitch shifter delay PS2 that's cool it's quite they're quite sought after apparently um yeah the boss pedals are um they're also super moddable as well all the old yeah the old boss pedals can be messed with if you're willing to lose the original asking price <laughs> we could have, we could have done with that earlier on because my voice was pitched like four octaves yeah. down that was so strange Anyway, cool. I could go on forever. There's, a, I don't know what else I've got that's here. Great. That's great. That's kind of I... that's the main. That's, excuse me. That's the main thing. Yeah. And I use Excellent. focal focal uh, focal monitors. They're uh, the focal solos. They're great monitors. And what do you produce in? What sort of DAW? Uh, Ableton Live now. I, I use Cubase for phew, a best part of seventeen years or something. From SX2 all the way up to um, Cubase Nine, I guess. Uh, nine and a half and. Yeah, I made the switch to Ableton. I just found it. I started sketching in it. For, you know, I used it as a sketch pad for, for years. Um, made a lot of the the metalhead stuff on, on Ableton originally, and finished it in Cubase. And I started doing that more. And I think just lately, just from teaching Ableton in a in a deeper sense, and starting to really see the levels of it, and kind of yeah. Also, Cubase just kept crashing for me. It's never been stable since like version six. It, I don't know why, but um, yeah, I've never found it to be that reliable personally, not to want to take a dump on Steinberg because they're a great company. But yeah, just never, don't know what it is. It's never really sort of worked for me uh, probably. Um, Ableton, so. Ableton is fantastic. I think it's um, so intuitive. I think once you know the way that it works, you can sort of, in, you sort of know how things are going to work. Yeah within it that you haven't even used before you just know, oh i think if i click that or control click that this is going to happen and it happens um uh yeah it's an amazing amazing door i i used to like cubase because it had like the midi had like the midi arpeggiator built into the track and like All right. it had it had like midi tools that were built into each track channel um and that was yeah that was quite a nice feature of the sx the early yeah yeah, yeah. okay the midi plugins yeah yeah that was quite revolutionary when it came out it was definitely you know a midi gate as well actually um midi gate was a huge thing that's that and that's old school you used to get hardware midi gates i don't know if you remember them but that's like that's real old school stuff it's like literally audio in and audio out and a midi in and out and you or in and i think you just send it any midi, midi signal and it would literally just hardware gate an audio signal. Well, that's that's funny that you bring that up because I've yeah. been I've been like making one of what you're describing there in the most convoluted way possible, but it does work. Sort of like a yeah, using a relay, using electronic relay and right. switching the relay on and off. But yeah, I spoke to CJ Bolland last week, who is a techno producer from yeah. uh, a huge techno producer. Sugar is sweeter. He, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, the Armin van Helden uh, remix was huge of that, wasn't it? Um, yeah, and he was saying exactly, he was saying like never underestimate the power of things like that, like little audio gates or like just yeah, a man. little envelope. He was like, you can do so much with just shaping the signal. Yeah, man. He's like, those utilities can do amazing things. Yeah, yeah. And for me as a producer, if you like, um, what's become kind of the front and center of what I've been trying to do has been focusing on tonality and kind of how important the tonality of drums for example are you know or or those just the shape of things in yeah like the details really um super important how would you do that how would you with a particular track say how would you ensure that it has that uh I got I got a lot deeper into doing stuff with saturation and kind of bussing and I started compressing more I mean I haven't 
I never really use compression to be honest with you. I still I still don't use it that much, but just some certain things to do with like just the tone of stuff, almost like listening in a almost a non musical or no, actually the most kind of musical way. So not really focusing on the tune itself, but just maybe hearing trying to hear the drums and where the tonalities are all hitting in the melody of the drums. Like like in the way like a, a good drummer will play the kit like an instrument and using the notes and kind of playing different timbres on and sort of different velocities on different different times, ghost notes and stuff, and getting more into the just emotional uh, connection with, you know, like so Bruce Swedeen, right, the legendary uh, mixing engineer that mixed uh, Michael Jackson's albums, he talked about the idea of the emotion is in the transients, um, which has always stuck with me, I think, and more so now is really important, especially from, I think, appreciating uh original dub reggae records and the kind of tonality that king tubby was getting and scientists and, and all these legendary engineers there's that's super super high quality um and very very serious techniques involved in order to capture this kind of tonality that can be easily overlooked when you're just diving into splice and stuff like that so i'm really into capturing um analog drums now and kind of working them so that they have a certain feel and tonality and shaping is part of it so i use like spl transient designer a lot for that um even just the gate just a good old noise gate um but also things like spiff is a great thing from oak sound where you've got like multi-band spectral um transient shaping multi-band compression multi-band this and that saturation as well you know um all those tools to kind of really mold the tonality of mm. things really you know um love it they do, the, the probably spend too much do. time doing it <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you do man your tunes sound amazing like um uh yeah the, the company who do spiff they also do the soothe don't they like a vocal thank you by the transient. way yeah yeah soothe is great as well that that soothe and spiff plugins i think a lot of us have been waiting for those kind of tools for for a yeah. long time the idea of actually being able to suppress resonance um for me i have hearing damage uh, in my left ear quite severe hearing damage from uh, an infection ironically um but uh, so my right ear compensates above 4k for this one and for some reason whether it's the damage or the compensation i'm very very sensitive to resonance especially the sort of harsh areas the high mids so yeah i'm super grateful for something like soothe you know have you ever used a sub pack yes i've got one here somewhere because I just keep hearing yeah. really, you know, people that I really respect say, you know, just casually mention that they, they swear by their sub pack. Yeah, some people do. I, I, I got given a couple and uh, was very, not tight, but, you know, sort of went into the office and I met the guys years ago and, and love what they do and I love the sub pack. It just never became part of my routine, um, personally. I, I, weirdly, you know, it fits just in the back of this Herman Miller chair nicely. You know, it's all very plush and lovely but it just i don't know what it was i think it just never really gelled somehow i think something about the gain staging about it just i just it was just too fiddly for me and yeah but they are they're amazing they are really good and they're actually yeah. very good for for very very detailed sub work um especially when you've got things like uh low frequencies kind of interfering with each other you can really feel when you've got interference in the bass um yeah they're great tools yeah, uh, DJ Rap swears by using hers, and um, mm. 
uh, Mylar Melodies as well. I think he had an ear problem uh, growing oh. up as a child. He right. he always used to mix his tunes really, really bass heavy, and he only realised later on that he had like an ear problem. So yeah, he also said he, he's hmm. a big fan. Yeah, some people have that. Uh, some people have that thing with they can't hear low frequencies that well, right? Yeah, normally yeah. it's like you just get ringing and like high frequency loss. But yeah, I thought you were going to say it was from DJing having like one exactly right. One ear. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's ironic because my right ear is definitely fucked from DJing. Uh, like for hundred percent, it's not as good as the left ear, uh, and I will put that down to having one cat yeah. on and having it really loud. Yeah, um, I have to apologise. I haven't really sort of flowed this interview in any sort of logical way. That's all right. We're just having a chat. Yeah. Um, So we haven't really talked about any of your releases. Uh, We spoke a little bit about self, and you did mention your your new release. Who is this guy? Yeah. Yeah, Acid Dub Studios, which I absolutely loved. Acid Dub Studies, you mean? What did I call it? Acid Dub Studios. That that's my writing. Sorry, yes, acid dub studies. Oh, good. Yeah, loved it, man. Nice one. Yeah. Yeah, very. Um, it, I I mean, I can't help but think about leftism when I just cool. when I was listening to it. That's cool. That's great. That's a that's a um, that's a that's an apt reference, I guess, and it's quite humbling to hear. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks. I don't know what to say. Yeah, did you? Because it is a bit. Uh, I guess from you, it's only it's only been released quite recently, hasn't it? I actually can't remember when it was out. I think it's been about a month. Hmm. Yeah. What was the idea behind that release? Like, what was the? Where did the inspiration come from for that? Um, kind of from a mixture of places. I think partly from what I was being passionate of. I found myself being passionate about, which was dub techniques and. Um, which I think is something that everyone, if you do music for long enough, you really start to discover and, and enjoy and explore, right? It's kind of, there's a reason why the Pioneer has a bunch of effects on it. You know, the Pioneer DJ mixer, it, that all that all goes back to, to King Tubby, you know, and, and, and the original sort of dub engineers. So for me, it's about surrender, if you like, to a certain degree, and kind of this whole idea of what Brian Eno would talk about, surrender and, and chaos, uh, what's it, surrender and... Um, control control and surrender and i found it to be a way of injecting a bit of chaos so chaos and order as well you know kind of like what i love about dub is is and dub techniques is the chaos that can be injected and this is why i resonate a lot with um someone like adrian sherwood you know um who i discovered from the sherwood and pinch stuff actually uh shout out to pinch um I knew a bit about on you sound, but I never really paid much attention. And I was more of a dub techno head anyway, uh, you know, rhythm and sound and, and basic channel, et cetera, et cetera. Since that, since the, the days that that came out, I mean, I've had rhythm and sound since 2001 and, and was always a big fan of that sound. So I don't know what happened. I, I guess it was about 2018. Um, I remember around about Christmas time, I was just sat in the pub with my mate and really expressing how frustrated I was with the DJ bookings I was getting. And just not really feeling very happy about where I was at and how people perceive me as an artist. Uh, Like I was saying before, I think it's kind of funny, like, you know, I was very unhappy with being pegged as a drum and bass producer. Not because of how I might feel about drum and bass or how people 
so people thought you know i was being snobby about drum and bass and the culture it's like no like i think drum and bass culture has some issues that need to be dealt with don't get me wrong but i love the culture i love the the fact that it's this kind of global um almost like a cult you know it's like people are really really you're kind of either in and out in, in, in or out you know and i love that um that it's got such a dedicated fan base and I love the music, like this, the range of, there's so much amazing talent and, and scope in that world. Um, but I've personally, for myself and my creativity, was feeling quite frustrated with um, how singular it had become over the years. Taking the DJ bookings, you know, remixing Shadowboxing twice, you know, I've only got myself to blame in that regard, I suppose. <laughs> but I think, you know... Um, Although I love doing that and I love remixing, you know, digital space funk, which is one of my favorite jungle tunes of all time, you know. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, certain doors started to close over time. And um, in some in some regard, and I, and I really started to miss what felt like the old days, you know, when I was in London and doing the Tempo Clash nights we used to do, at like at Cors Corsica Studios, where it was like, you know, uh, we'd have like Stingray and then Spin and Rashad and then Object. And it was, it was not that it was just techno or just electro, you know, we would have like hip hop producers come down and play and sort of people coming, like we had Kutmar was one of the residents, you know, like Kid Knievel was a resident, Blue Daisy was a resident. He's now, um, uh, he goes by the name, he's just his given name, Quez Darko, I think. He's like a producer for Slow Tie. And just being amongst all this kind of melting pot of sound, and and that was just fine, and that eclecticism I started to miss a lot. Um, and so yeah, I started to have to sort of push back a little bit against um, some of those preconceptions. And I got into the studio and just really needed a new process, and and basically realised that what I was listening to at home a lot was dub records, and I was like, well, why don't I try and explore? So thankfully, you know, my good friend Moore Sounds, who's a, a long time dub aficionado from um from uh, france he he was uh, very kind enough to give me some pointers on various techniques and some other people like dub munger um he's another kind of ex junglist if you're not ex junglist but ex drum and bass producer he used to work as morphe he does fantastic dub albums and um sample packs and stuff and he gave me some great pointers on you know looking at what sort of desks to get and kind of you know researching um also dub chasm in bristol um friends of mine did a remix for them and learned a few bits from them as well and kind of yeah but I didn't want to just make dub you know I think it's it's um it's always been my thing to try and just not reappropriate straight you know sort of carbon copy you know um and and so I was like well I'd love the 303 so why not try it and it came out all right <laughs> you know like I, I think I wrote Absolutely. about 20 or 20 or 30 tracks right and so the album Acid Dub Studies is a kind of um, a collection of sort of my, what I think are the best bits. Um, there's some remixes coming soon as well. Actually, I can oh, excellent talk about a little bit. Um, I can't say much for now, but there's this. I got some some um, pretty key people for me um, who were in, in quite influential in the making of that record to to come and do some versions. So, Fantastic. More, yeah, more news on that soon. Um, aside from the the bass bots that you have and the Zox box, like yeah. the acid acid machines, 
Can you share any, um, or yeah, would you mind sharing any sort of dub making techniques that were um, that sort sure. of inspired you? Yeah, well, I, I plan on doing some kind of video, I think, or some sort of streaming related thing around it at some point. Um, but a lot of it was was built up in layers, so you know, I'm not, you know, I cheated to a lot of it. You know, like I'm not, I'm not Adrian Sherrod. I'm not a scientist. I, I don't. Um, although I, I, some of the sort of moments in the tracks if you like some portion of the tracks were laid out on a desk and done live i would layer up things and kind of cut and and sort of use the digital side as well you know kind of to to create collage using collages of bits of me dubbing to some extent so some of the sends um are in the box some of them are recorded live out of the desk so it's kind of um an exploration of different techniques. That's why it's called studies. It's a study on how to do it. So some of the kind of effects are, you know, for example, I've got this bug brand, PT Delay, which is a local Bristol. No way. Yeah, it's a Bristol Tom made. Bugman. I'm yeah. interviewing him. I'm interviewing him in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wicked. Oh, um, tell him safe because he's oh, makes, really? he makes amazing kit. And um, I know, right? I love yeah. his stuff. Yeah. I've been trying to get him for ages. That's cool. Sorry, what was... What no, that's was, exciting. Did, I'm, I'm, I'm super glad to hear you, you've got him coming on. Yeah, yeah. no, um, it's basically, yeah, this it's a fantastic um, t- fantastic delay unit. It's got tons of character, really good saturation built into it. And uh, it's also got an insert as well, so you can kind of... So I did some stuff with... Um, I've got somewhere this little pitch shifter that I put on the insert to make these sort of cascading pitch delays and stuff in there. Um, I've got a West Finger... You know the kind of um, Tubby's filter. You know the the kind of high pass filter, the sort of model of the Altec, which I've got on the insert for that. Uh, the big sky I used a little bit, not too much though. Actually, this is more of a super floaty stuff. Um, reverb wise, I've got a spring. You know, just the Intelligio Spring Ray uh, modular. I'll just flip to my studio, studio cam. Yeah, it's called that a spring ray. Cool. It's basically just an amp for uh, for for. Um, you know, for spring tanks that you can have in oh, a module, nice. it works at modular level, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, and that was usually either in series or parallel with um, the clouds, so immutable clouds, which is a great granular kind of reverb and delay unit. Um, clouds features fairly heavily on that as well, although it's not obviously clouds. I kind of used it fairly gently, if you like. Um, and yeah, the Pi phase, and I kind of had a chain for a while. So like on one send, I would have the electron angle analog heat, then the pie phase, and then the bug brand delay, and then the big sky, all in series. So it would just be on one send. Um, since then, I've kind of sp- split that up a bit. But yeah, I really, honestly, I, if, I, if I had all the money, I'd get one of these new Zyle desks. I think it's, I don't know how you pronounce it, Zahel or Zahel, Zahel. Um, I don't know, I've not heard of them. They're beautiful, man. But like a twelve, I think a twelve channel or an eight channel is like twenty grand. Um, Fucking designed up. and hand, designed and built in Germany, and um, uh, Mark Anestas has been involved in the conception of it, which is amazing. And they've got like six auxiliary sends, so yeah, can never get enough. You need was always you know you need more sends, right? So three, I've got three, true, three, I've got three, and that's like nowhere near enough, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I um, yeah. I, I hear you, man. Um, I think yeah. When you've got sends on a desk, you just got so much uh, freedom to throw things around. Yeah. Uh, I interestingly learned that the 
one of the first sequences that one of the the ARP sequencer that came out in like the early eighties. Yeah. Like it was a two um, eight step sequences that you could either run at the same time or run one after the other. But for each step, you could route to one of three outputs. Wow. Such a genius idea for a sequencer. And that was like one of the first sequences. Um, yeah, I wrote an article for Sonic State about a, a, a brief history of sequencing. And in doing research for that article, I, I saw that. And I was like, what a genius idea for a step sequencer to have optional cool. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like imagine you had that on with like three different effects chains or even, yeah, just... I love, yeah, that's great, man. Thank you very much for sharing that. I'm so no, sure. amazed you have the bug brand, the bug brand thing. Yeah, <laughs> no, shout out Tom. They're they're a great company, and um, and to Jazz Jazz as well. She she's a, a great artist who works for Tom, doing a lot of the soldering and stuff. Oh, and cool. um, her artist name is Guest. She's part of also part of the local group called Jabu, who are great. Um, they're kind of a great ambient kind of what do you call them ambient soulful pop ish i don't know just good good band anyway <laughs> yeah. sounds good man that's great yeah, yeah. so yeah that's that was ambient uh, ambient acid dub studies but yeah, yeah. so and we also talked about go on no i was just gonna say like that and that's the thing i think um it was a bit tough for a while because i was getting offers for gigs and i was like i really don't want to play just singular genre events anymore I'm, i really am very much passionate about getting back to that sense of eclecticism and some people didn't really understand they'd be like well we're a drum based promoter but we want to book you for something different and i'm like <sighs> i got really sick of being like the weird guy at the drum and bass event you know like it, it got really really tiring i mean I've, I've got a funny story i was i think i played in sofia in bulgaria and it was a metalheads event and there was a guy at the front in a Metalheads t-shirt and I was playing Unofficial Ghost by Doc Scott, Metalheads classic. And the guy was shouting at me, play some fucking drum and bass, right? And it's right. like, and so it was kind of like, <laughs> at that point I realized I was like, obviously no, that's an old school tune, not, people, not everyone knows it and I'm really not trying to judge the guy. I just think it's very funny. But at the same time, you know, I was also playing, you know, weird halftime stuff, um, footworky things. And granted, it's a Metalheads event, etc. But and, and respect to Metalheads, love the Goldie and TC1, all the guys just, you know, for supporting me over the years with that and allowing me to do their events because what an opportunity. But I think um, I think the drum bass audience, they want they just they want to hear drum bass. They don't want to hear some weird shit like and that's cool, you know, like it's it's fine. And, and I got a bit tired, really, of sort of. Um, being the kind of weird guy at the drum and bass event and sort of like promoters, not to say, how do I put it tactfully? Um, I think promoters took a risk with me and, I, and I'm really appreciative of that. But at the same time, I think over time, I, I started to really not feel at home there and, and felt this yearning for some of the, and especially starting to see eclecticism coming back into the game, uh, to the game, you know what I mean? Like the promotion world and kind of the mm. landscape, if you like, and really wanted to get into that and, was starting to get that way and then bloody COVID hit, you know. Um, and it, But it allowed me to finish this album, which is great, you know. So. Perfect, yeah. Yeah. That is good. But it's funny, isn't it? I think people want a... Um, there's like a certain comfort in knowing what to expect. And some people, I guess, really want that, you know. They want... Um, and that's okay, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. So, yeah, some people really 
because I, I I think being eclectic, you know, like I've I've always loved people who are like eclectic in what they do, and they sort of they sort of shape shift and they do whatever they want, and um, you know that whatever that inspires them creatively is good. And there's so many there's so many stories of like big artists who've just like mentally crumbled because their audience hasn't. Um, hasn't liked their second album because it didn't sound like the first one and it's yeah. like it's yeah. little it's funny isn't it, it um when the, it's their music it de- it depends on where you get your validation from right so all art is 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 in inherently has a degree of validation seeking to it i mean so but i think it's about what where you where you want to get that from um i think it's very easy to get caught up in addiction to attention and kind of addiction to appreciation and that can be super unhealthy like 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 toxic to the point where it will people end their lives you know and kind of spiral to into really bad places i think because of the the, especially the loftiness of how fame can really you know you can get sucked up into the stratosphere of fame and it's 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 that you need to hold on to your soul you know (laughs) like um and uh yeah not that i had that experience by the way it's you know i'm not speaking from experience more from from hearing people like russell brand for example talk about his experiences recently on youtube great video um about the toxicity of fame and uh a great quote actually he said uh fame is a mask i can't quote it directly but it's something about the fame being like the um a mask that eats the wearer you know which is quite quite um poignant i think in a way it can you end up becoming that sort of car not you can how do i put it you can become a caricature of yourself in some ways or you can be so attached to the public face that you put out into the world that there's all your eggs in that basket you know um and yeah that can be super tricky territory Yeah, I do enjoy Russell Brand's videos, and I think of all the people who are like socially commenting on on situations now, he's um, he's hitting the, he's hit the nail on the head so many times. And he, yeah, he's got a very loving spirit, and he's putting out a lot of the things that have helped him for other people. Yeah, I think he's done a lot of hard work. Um, I, I I hated Russell Brand years ago. I didn't like the stand-up Russell Brand. I found him to be just overly performative and just to the point where it was just garish and just too much but uh i like i like to see i, I don't know I'm, I've, I've got a lot of respect for him for, for being able to just grow as a person and still stay in the public eye and i think as a celebrity or a former celebrity he thinks i think he's doing really good work actually yeah yeah same 100%. as you and yeah. i love that quote too um and for some reason it reminded me of the quote uh, there's an adam curtis documentary um where he's talking about um, what Burial thinks about the internet. Oh, right, yeah. And he said it's... Is that um, Century of the Self? I think it's Century of the Self. Yeah, it could be Century of the Self. I do know them all, like... Yeah, I've I've watched them, like, obsessively. But he says that the the trackpad or the mouse is like a Ouija board. Yeah, right. That you're not in control of. Yeah. <laughs> that's a nice way to put it yeah 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 but that's that's when you're making your best art you're in the flow state as they call it you are 
essentially just an instrument for something else in the sense it can feel like it's something else but it's really uh your i guess your um how do i put it i think well flow state is a great buzz term for it but i think it's really it's hard to put words it kind of it's why we have problems with language i think english language is very limiting not that i speak any other languages but anyway burial said it great so yeah you know the idea of i think it's just getting out of your own way you know, uh, certain people call it channeling, you know, in that sense of if it, you, sometimes you feel like you are sort of channeling something else or your kind of um, the internal dashboard is all fl flashing, you know, it's kind of, there's a vibe that happens and you kind of just, it's just flowing and happening. So, yeah. And you can hear that in Burial's music, I think, especially his earlier stuff, like anyone. It's, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a very much a spooky magic to to that and i think curtis was quite whether it was his choice i don't know but um those documentaries benefit greatly from that edition as well and they're amazing oh, documentaries yeah. I'm just, have you yeah. have you seen the can't get you out of my head i've seen a couple of episodes of it yeah it's really, yeah really enjoying that at the moment actually i love it yeah i love it i have his entire back catalogue um uh, for me bitter lake is one of the most profoundly moving yeah. and so um, sad so sad about it, you know yeah <laughs> But there's yeah. something about it that I don't know how he makes it so watchable. But um, and it's two hours long. For a lot yeah. of people, I think would see two hours and just be put off immediately with the documentary. But for me, that's just um, it's an absolute masterpiece. It is, man. And like how to? I mean, the bravery of just attempting to describe the story of the Middle East from the inception of the trouble to to where we're at or where we were at when it was filmed, uh, put together. Sorry, um, just, yeah, incredible incredible and, and, and it's you have to kind of watch it a few times really i think to actually get a real taste for well, not taste but the um the roadmap to all the fuckery that the the american government have done over the years in, over the middle east it's uh it's so exactly. complex it's so it it's, it's too complicated for people which is why you know um people perhaps because of its complexity people let's say um fail to understand why you know, there's so there are quite a lot of illegal refugees kind of trying to get out of that part of the world. <laughs> you, you know, um, mm. it's like, well, yeah, but yeah, that's why, guys. <laughs> you know, um, and yeah, so yeah, Adam, Adam Curtis is a is a yeah, he's done a great service, I think, to to people, to humanity. I think yeah. definitely, and and yeah. I think what you're saying is absolutely right because uh, there's definitely been times I've sat down and watched these documentaries with a notepad because I know. Right. I can't keep up with it. There's like so much that to unpack in there. Um, and he like brings it, he, you know, he'll magnify onto a, a one small moment of a handover of, or a telephone call between two people as a huge knock on effect laid mm. down the line. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely love his stuff. Um, oh yeah. And I just thought of, um, did you see the film uh, Human Flow that came out a few years ago, which was about refugees moving no, I haven't war zones. no. Oh, it's amazing. It's about by uh, Ai Weiwei, the Chinese artist. Ah, okay. Heard of. And yes. um, yeah, it's got lots of, I mean, it's just about people leaving their homes because they're war zones. Um, and um, I mean, it, it's a really profound story, but it's also beautifully shot with like drone footage and um, which just helps to in some way put it into context of like how many people are moving and and um yeah the the places they have to go to just writing it um, down i'll check it out thank you it's a good one yeah it's great that 
One thing I wanted to mention is something that's on my mind, actually, I think would be an important message to put out to people that might be a fan of me or and your podcast, is um, obviously there's a lot of dialogue around COVID. If I can just, you know, borrow your soapbox for sure. a minute. Is that right? Yeah. Sure, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll give it back. I'll give it back, promise. <laughs> um, you know, basically, the the pause that we've been able to have and kind of to examine what it is we've been doing and maybe having a bit more time to listen and kind of hear hear voices that weren't necessarily getting heard and uh, marginalised voices to to that extent. Um, something I've, over the last few days, been, been made very starkly aware of is the idea of uh, the inclusion rider. I don't know if you've seen anything about that uh, lately, but I feel that my, I may be late to the party and I probably for sure am late to the party there. But yeah, it's something I think that um, if people aren't, aren't aware of, I'd like to just sort of just bring awareness to um, in, in a public setting because it's actually probably the most pragmatic and simple direct tool of trying to um, bring, you know, just bring basically different people into the DJ space. Um, as a DJ, um, I think that some elements of the landscape and music have done it better. And, you know, I would say arguably house and techno seems to be more cosmopolitan from an outsider perspective. I'm sure there's many issues in there anyway, business techno being one of the, for sure, one of the main issues, I'm sure. Um, but it's certainly in the kind of bass slash dubstep slash drum and bass or whatever you want to call it world. We have a lot of, I say we, I mean, I'm barely, you know, peg downable if you like in any of those things, but from what I've seen in my experience anyway, just to, sorry, I'm just ranting, but I think that world lacks a real understanding of this. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done in those worlds of allowing marginalized people uh, in. And I, I can say this from, with some serious degree of authority, given the conversations I've had with friends, you know, my partner, who's a DJ, um, who is a woman, um, and uh, and her experiences also as a queer woman and kind of her friendship, her groups and their experiences of life, friends of mine who are black, queer, I mean, you name it, just, just people that are perhaps just have been slightly left out of the conversation for quite some time. And I liked, I, you know, I like the amount of noise. I like the fact that there's a lot of disruption and obviously there's a pushback and people saying anti-woke and all the rest of it and all this nonsense that's coming up on social media from the division, et cetera, et cetera. It's all noise. What matters is, um, I think dealing with what you can and what I can do is, is to be verbal and talk about the idea of an inclusion rider. It's just such a simple thing. Obviously it's not going to fix all the problems, but I did want to mention that here is just, yeah, look at, look mm. at the idea of an inclusion rider. The, the inclusion rider, if you don't know people is, um, you know, you have your rider, so you have an agent that books you into a, into a, uh, an event, and you have your hospitality rider, which says what drinks you want, what snacks you want. Um, you have your technical rider, which says what you play on, you know, CDJs, vinyl, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and uh, accommodation rider, which is you know, some people are very picky about hotels and you know the rest of it. And an inclusion Tents. rider would be a, would be an extra clause in the contract. Uh, no tense yet <laughs> um, but an inclusion rider would be an extra clause in the contract that would say essentially to, to the extent of I if you're booking me to play at your event at headline, as a headliner or a co-headliner or just part of a, a festival roster you must include 
either a woman, a brown person, God forbid, you know, it's just, just, just people that are marginalized. Um, and I think it's about, and I'm still working on the wording. I'm talking to friends and trying to figure out how to say this correctly and kind of get it right. Um, but I'm in the process of putting one together for myself and I'll be sharing that publicly as well. Um, and certainly trying to just highlight that. I think it's just, you know, such a simple thing. And this comes off the back of watching this great movie, the, um, underplayed, um, documentary which is out on Amazon Prime for free at the moment um, oh, which, cool. which uh, is great it highlights uh, various um, women in different sort of parts of the kind of DJ world from sort of you know super underground to massive EDM um, so Alison Wonderland's in there who's like a gigantic artist um, Rez but also Shirelle um, Tiger Paw and others and they kind of talk about yeah their experiences as a woman and it's 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 um it's it's very very well made because unfortunately i think that a lot of men immediately get their back up and think oh here we go it's another woman having a go at me um but actually it's um you know it's just it's just an expose of their experience and i think there's some very poignant and um potent messages in that which i've really enjoyed and um yeah taking away this hard idea of an inclusion rider so yeah Definitely. google it sounds like a great idea i'm yeah. wondering like i'm not someone who's dealt in riders or anything like that before but i'm familiar with the concept i wonder whether it would be would it be more instead of the each of the artists at an event giving their inclusion riders with their other riders yeah I don't, wouldn't it, would it work better that the event had this rule anyway? Well, you'd you think that. Um, but the thing with promotion and promoting is that there are certain issues that they have, which are totally understandable, right? So they've got to sell, they've got to sell tickets. So what tends to happen is that they have a pool of people that they might keep going back to. Um, if, it, if it were that simple, we wouldn't need an artist-based conclusion rider. But if we look at already the events that are popping up now post-COVID, um, I'm still seeing all-male lineups. Uh, and it's uh, it's surprising, actually, because I, you know, this is my cognitive bias, really. I was probably naively sort of um, hopeful that that wouldn't be the case. Um, but I think, if I'm honest, I think that yeah, people need to do better. And I think one way to really make that happen is to actually have it come from within the thing. So, you know, if if a, if a bunch of DJs have these inclusion riders, then promoters, if, you know, this is going to happen, people. If you want to book me, you need to have a woman playing. <laughs> you need to have a, someone who isn't a white male. I'm sorry, but that's the case. And that's just how it is. Um, yeah. So, next, yeah. The, the, next step, the next person I'm interviewing is a girl called Emma. Yeah, um, right. She's, sure. she's run a thing called Producer Girls. Producer Girls for years, man. Yeah, she's she's a yeah. legend. Yeah, she is a legend. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not I'm that slightly... familiar with her, but I just know her by reputation. So I know she's a legend. So yeah. do I, man. I know her only by reputation, really, and and a, and a few emails here and there. So I'm really looking forward to uh, speaking to her. It's great. Yeah, she's really cool, and yeah, she's been running this Producer Girls things, which is getting any girls who want to learn how to use Ableton, showing them how to produce. Um, and um yeah that's that's been a, a really cool thing but yeah i think absolutely valuable work that you're doing there and if i can do anything to help or get the word out or put you in contact with anyone there i'd love to help out 
Oh, thanks. Yeah. You know what? I think it's one of those things, you know, so my friend Martin is a friend and collaborator. Um, he um, He's already done it. He just did it. He didn't talk about it. He just did it. And I think that's, that's really just what needs to happen. We can have this, and, he, and to quote him directly, if he doesn't mind, just from our WhatsApp chat, you know, he's like, so, you know, it could be a case of like 20 people get together and there's a 10-day fucking uh, back and forth and a committee and yada, yada, and it takes forever. Really, it's just, you just got to kind of just flipping do it, man. It's just, it's fairly simple wording. You get it in your contract. I'm just trying to get the wording right. Um, and that's what I would say to anybody. So, yeah. I mean, if uh, if something that's in your consciousness, Chris, if you want to talk about it with other people, maybe, you know, that would be a great way to kind of talk about it. But um, yeah, I think it's going to be a buzzword anyway. You're going to start seeing it floating around. Um, yeah. And, then and, there'll, be, and there'll be some pushback and, and, uh, and some back and forth about it. But, you know, I think it's uh, it's not perfect, but it's one step, I think, in the right direction. I think it's just, I mean, any any people who sort of try and fight back anything like that, it's just their, their own fears and insecurities of them not being relevant. There's an idea relevant. of somehow this limited quantity uh, that, you know, more women get involved equals less men. And that's just really naive. You know, it's just overly dualistic to me what you bring you bring other people into the thing what you end up doing is you create more events you create more variety um which in itself creates more different spaces for more members of the public to come out and do and go to places you know if you if you've you know something i think the drone base has suffered from in such an unbelievably bad way is just these lineups where it's like 50 dudes and heart and like 80 90 percent of the crowd is a bunch of dudes all right, and then the women are all crowded up the front because they feel safer near the DJ booth because they can put their bags down and stuff and they can kind of stick together. And if everyone will never notice that a drum and bass raves, but it's uh, you know it's quite a common thing I've saw, saw from the booth. And I think that there are just more interesting voices out there and styles and kind of and you can certainly see it now with the streaming, right? So now that there's been so much streaming throughout COVID, I've certainly seen a lot more female presence just on streaming a lot more there's a lot and it's like that's an expose it's like look there are all these women there you know and i think i think drum and bass for sure could could learn a lot you know um i think rupture in terms of the jungle side of things are exemplary in that respect one of my favorite events that i played at mm-hmm. um and one of my fav- favorite bunch of people man the rupture crew because they what do they do they are run by a white a white woman and a black man who are a couple. They got kids. They are deep in it. Rupture is their brand. That's um, uh, Mantra and uh, Double O. And I think that their ethos is about inclusivity, just by the default nature of who they are as people and what they stand for. They're also youth workers. You know, um, Mantra wow. is a, is a trustee in Raw Materials, which is a long running youth centre in Bri- in Brixton that's been doing good work in the community for a long time. Um, I did some work for them years ago. And um, yeah, so to me, Rupture's like an, I say ideal, but you know, um, they're like, so Mantra that runs Rupture is involved in EQ50, which is a very much a spearheading movement of trying to celebrate women in drum and bass. And they've done a great series recently on Instagram of, um, you know, uh, I think they've done like 12 different women who people might not know about, you know, sort of from the 90s and onwards. And, yeah, some of the records, you know, you might not 
think were actually produced by women. So if you know that tune, R-Type by Joe, it's like a, it's a jungle classic. That's a woman I made that. probably know the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, pr- produced by a woman. So um, in collaboration with another guy, but still, you know, it's... Um, yeah, so there's, there, there's there's lots of these undercover things which they've been doing great work in terms in terms of just just exposing that you know there are there are some more women around. I mean, in fact, I'll just shout out to a DJ called Lenore who's in uh, Boston, and she's been doing a weekly drum and bass event, and I mean weekly every Thursday for twenty years. Wow! And she's DJed pretty much every week for twenty years. Um, she's and she, you don't you, and you don't see her getting an award in DJ Mag or you know in Drum and Bass Arena and what because she just she's not interested in any of, any of that celebrity shit. So it's kind of um, it's an interesting um, thing to think about, I think. And I'm not you know again I'm not trying to have a go. I'm just saying you know that there's you know more different people equals more different events equals more events equals more ticket sales. You know if you if you reduce something down to sort of its own self-referential homogenous monoculture that's just stagnation and death you have to have things other things coming in um so i I don't know i just think that that um the risk of sounding preachy please forgive me it's just i think that not just drum and bass i think just the dj world at large can really benefit from from just more inclusivity so yeah inclusivity riders Check it out. Hundred percent. The yeah. DJ world and the world in general. Well, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But this is um, but this is what I can do. You know, this is something I can do that's simple, and I, I am in the DJ world and in the production 100%. world too. You know, I'm figuring stuff out. I'm going to be doing some courses and stuff online um, uh, over the summer because obviously it's our summer break as educators, and uh, I'd like to experiment a little bit. And um, so, yeah, offering stuff uh, through the safety in the way of the internet, I think, uh, is a great opportunity for for people who might feel intimidated in a classroom or you know suits them more so Mm, yeah i will say this you know just 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 one more thing to say and it's not again about the drum basing but i think it's a worthwhile case study Uh, as a guy i know i would say a friend is acquaintance really um he's a producer he's black and he was saying to me um one night in a club uh before he really had any releases out he was like He's like, I'm kind of scared. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't really know if people want to even see me or listen to me. I was like, what? why? And he's like, because I'm black. And he's, he's talking about drum and bass here, you know? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what? I was like, it's drum and bass. And that was his experience just coming into the scene. was like, he felt immediately that he was not going to get gigs. He felt like he was going to be, he just didn't really feel welcome. Not from anyone that said anything to him or whatever, just his general fear, the fear of him just walking into that room um, and being a black male or just a black person. You know, that was that was a real eye-opener. I'd never heard anyone say that. And I was very shocked because obviously I grew up, to me, drum and bass was, it was, there was a lot of black people involved. To me, it was black culture, especially jungle. I mean, so I was just shocked to hear that. Um, yeah, I think that kind of that kind of woke me up a little bit, you know. Definitely, I think um, from my personal experience growing up, I didn't. With most, I think ninety percent of the drum and bass DJs we would watch through black. Like, yeah, DJ hype was probably, uh, <laughs> and maybe yeah. the, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, predominantly it was black people. So that that is quite a strange thing for uh, to hear. Yeah, but if you fast forward twenty years, you know, look at the lineups on on stages and festivals. There's mostly white dudes, you know, and. Mm. I do like yeah. the um, there's um, there's a YouTube channel that does um, I think it's called Telecom or um, they do like blind playing of old yeah tracks. Telecom Electronic Beats 
Electronic Beats that. is great. They used to do it's these great, great DVDs. They used to do great DVDs that you could get with magazines and like pick up for free in record shops. Right, because yeah. yeah, they're, they're super inclusive, aren't they? They yeah. just—they've yeah. got such an amazing. Every time, it's just such an eclectic lineup of people. And if you, I—I'm a—you know—I do go into like researching everyone who's on it, and you know, people I don't yeah. know about. And it's amazing. Like there are so many great people making music, and it isn't—it isn't right that small minority of people that fit a particular category. No, it's not. Yeah, the headline. <coughs> and the reason I think that. Excuse me. I'm just getting a uh, cotton mouth in here I've run out of liquids but yeah um I think the reason that we're in this boat you know of kind of white males kind of dominating everything it's it's got a lot to do I think with just access in general and that's kind of what I think is a good place to start doing things actually taking action I mean protest is one thing for sure that's great in terms of action I think um you know and this is from conversations I've had with friends in America or people I know, you know, people like um, the Duke Bounce work guys and, and some of the things they said to me, you know, Chris Jones is a great example, you know, he said to me, you know, pass the ball, you have the ball, pass the ball, you know. He's a big basketball player, so I'm assuming that's what, kind of what he means, you know, like just, just yeah, like if you have an opportunity or you have some degree of like contact or whatever, um, share that with people, you know, um, and I think in a way, society as it is, is set up that the people who are already winning in life have more access and also more feeling of entitlement, like they're entitled to success. You know, the mind state, and it's not for me to explain how a black person feels, right? But from what I've been told, at least, and my limited understanding as a youth worker, for example, is seeing people that immediately from, if you can imagine being five years old, and immediately seeing and feeling that you are going to remain on the underbelly of society, you know, that's that's a frightening prospect. And that's and try and internalize that as a white person and see how you feel. You know, that's a fucking terrifying thought, right? Well, that's most people's realities who aren't, you know, um, essentially white, in the West at least, anyway. Um, so I think um, it's something to listen to, be empathic and sympathetic for. Um, but really, just allow people in. <laughs> you know, just invite people in. I think, and and you know, if you're holding the keys, then yeah, why not let some other people have a go? So yeah, and that's that's really what's um, at stake here. I think is just this sort of sense of disappointment, which has led to a lot of anger and 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 rightfully frustration. And and kind of, it's actually it's it's up to us as the sort of uh, if you like the leaders or the, the people that have the keys to just you know share it was, it's supposed to be about community right like some of these issues are actually to do with individualism as well I could go on but you know the idea that the, we're all individuals you know going back to Adam Curtis I think he talks about that and it's a very good thing to critique is the idea that as as uh, creative people are often sort of um, it's quite solo we're individualistic it's about individual success over others uh, being competitive and um, that's a shitty lonely place to end up man like you know, like I've definitely felt some of that myself. And, and, yeah, um, me too. It's shit. You know, there's nothing beats like trying to have a community or t being part of a community uh, or at least trying to, 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 to foster a sense of community. Again, I'm quoting my, my partner. She's, she's fantastic in terms of her intention. It's been really inspiring um, having her uh, dialogue with her so much. And it's reminded me of how important that is and why I miss eclecticism and, and, um, the idea of cultures intermingling you know i i you know coming back to records right and record shopping i buy 
I like to buy music that sits in those nice in, in sort of um, uh, intersections between stuff. You know, one of the favourite things I bought recently is the the Primal Scream Echo Deck remixes. So, you know, Adrian Sherwood and, and sort of dubbing out um, Primal Scream. So you've got this kind of meeting of like, you know, dub techniques and then kind of indie rock or pop rock. or So it's kind of, you know, the specials, you know. There's, mm -hmm. there, there was a time, I think, where there was more inclusion. And I think the 80s, early 80s, there's so much we can draw from from some of the ethos i think of the of those days and i think um electronic music is, is starting to really benefit from that now anyway I, you know it's been amazing to see um how especially on the more sort of left field electronic and kind of techno sphere a lot more inclusion happening i just like to see it go spread further into uh yeah some of the more anglo-centric genres or styles mm. or, or worlds shall we say you know yeah uh, i have to say this one radio dj i listened to tom ravenscroft it's great yeah man he's just so i love listening to his shows because you'll get like nosebleed techno happening and then like um you know some west african tribal group or just... well, you know you know where he got it from right yeah 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 as in you know he's yeah so john pill is his dad right yeah i know yeah yeah good <laughs> good yeah i'm just saying sorry good uh, you know what people always mention tom rose got and always say oh yeah john pill's son so uh there you go that's it you know it's his, it, he's the spirit of his father coming through right? i know yeah. i just yeah. love listening to his shows because i mean it's it, yeah it's so unbelievably eclectic yeah um, but yeah man it just switches you on to like the whole world of music that's yeah. out there. Yeah, man. Um, like his father did. Obviously, you know, his father. He's yeah. You know, his father did the same thing. Um, but yeah, as as someone who's quite predominantly in the mainstream now as a, as a DJ, yeah. I, I just love his stuff. Yeah, I think he's afforded that too. I think he's in a, a great position to be able to do that and does it really well. Um, he plays my stuff. I mean, <laughs> you know, getting, getting the radio play music I make, getting played on on BBC Radio, it's like pretty much always him, and that says a lot about him. Man, he's he's fantastic. Um, That's great, man. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, yeah, I really, I I really admire your approach to music, and I absolutely love the music that you've made. Thanks for saying, man. There's a yeah. I was going to say I played on I played on um, his dad's show. Back in two thousand and three, I was on the John Peel show. Um, really? Wow! Because yeah. I had a did you play? I had, well, I was just going to say I had a spate of a sort of working in hip hop and turntablism to a certain degree um, in the zeros while I was doing that youth work under the name Too Tall and um, was a battle DJ and did all that kind of stuff for a while. And uh, yeah, they they invited us to perform our kind of DMC battle sets on John Peel's show. It was something he did every year for sort of two or three years, I think. Um, nice that was that was a uh, yeah a made avail as well that was amazing what was that like to play there man what was that day like <laughs> it was kind of surreal like I, I wasn't you know i wasn't really a muso or anything but like i knew about john peel obviously and yeah he liked i was scratching over some like jazz drums and um he was like oh what's that record you know it was like really really keen to find out what it was i was scratching with and stuff and yeah it was just generally sat there with a glass of wine just kind of while well, these producers were frantically moving around him trying to move cds around and shit he was just there reading, <laughs> reading bits of paper and just generally looking very distinguished and yeah humble nice nice um yeah he's a great guy i read his autobiography and he um yes he talks about 
talks about telling everyone he was the most boring. He always he was always adamant that he was the most boringest man in the world. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, the classic self depreciation of the. But he was like a you know almost like an encyclopedia. I'm sure of music. People like him are very important. You know, there's um, it's the curse of the journalist in a way. I think to be really, really, really a real journalist or anything that you love doing, right? You have to kind of be a nerd, and I think it can often feel like it's not interesting for other people. Like I'm for this entire podcast, I've been feeling like, who the fuck wants to listen to me rabbiting on about synths or inclusion riders or you know? But people do. People are generally they appreciate. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah well equally the i knowledge. have the same i have the same i have the same fear of every single interview and of putting out everyone is like am, am i providing a use a, an interesting voice to the conversation so yeah i think is it content human... <laughs> <laughs> is it content i don't know yeah i'm sure um, no i'm sure i'm sure people appreciate it i mean when you came, when you approached me i was like looking at the who you'd had and i was like shit, this guy knows his onions. Like, he's got a nice, broad... You know, that's that's the main thing I really respect about what you've been doing, man. It's to see the broadness and the kind of... Yeah, it's a broad church, as they say, right? Cheers. Yeah, I'm glad you. Yeah, you, I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, I, I didn't want to ever like paint myself into the corner and doing it and just doing it with. I want to do it with producers. I want to do it with mm. DJs. Um, yeah, it was all about. That's why. I, yeah, I spoke to community music makers. I told you about Hannah earlier on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to do that. And it's for me. It's it's yeah. It's it's been an amazing thing to be honest. Just to like self, just talk about myself for a moment. Um, yeah, this has basically helped me through lockdown doing this 100%. Right. Right. Like it, it's been, it was a silly idea that I had four, three or four years ago. But right now it's actually, first of all, yeah, it's starting to grow and, and get like known. And um, yeah, it's sort of helped me out immeasurably and just keeping a connection in, in like with people who are making music and making new connections and um that's amazing man i'm glad yeah it's been it's been i'm super pleased i started it it was such a fucking off the cuff idea <laughs> <laughs> well i think and i think that the, 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 these things are important as well i think you're doing something really valuable that um i'm a big fan of decentralization as a principle and i think that podcasts they they supply people with these it can be quite vital kind of sources of thought and conversation that are completely it's like public access radio or tv or something from back in the days in america or pirate in a way where it's um yeah it's a it's a beautiful format because it's completely open format you know in theory freedom of speech right is a, is a big thing right so it's kind of um of course it's very important freedom of speech but but point being um you know you can you can have a voice and say some stuff and kind of talk about things and but it's not a centralized narrative there's whatever you're into there's some stuff out there you can really get a lot of info i think it's been i think it's been vital and a massive part of humanity's evolution so yes it's good to be involved in and i think with and i think with the music world as well like there's kind of what you're doing i think there's a bit of a gap for that because at least from what i can see in my, in my limited understanding of podcasts there's um you know you have your kind of lex friedman's and and rogan and you know with celebrities but i think um 
on the music side, at least from what I've seen, I haven't really seen too much in-depth stuff with like producers or, or or just broad stuff. You know, there's people just working in one genre or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, no, I totally <laughs> basically. No, I totally agree, man. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I, 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 so many people really get obsessed with the gear and like you know how do you make music? And I think, yeah, there's so much more to it than that. And yeah, yeah, toys, toys can be. People get very technical, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Overly technical, yeah, okay, yeah, it's true. I'm not a technical producer, that's just it, I'm not. So, yeah, I just rabbit on about uh, myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have an OB6, and I, I, I know by the OB6, it's like, it, that is just like an absolute beast. Love that thing, yeah. fat as hell. Shout to D-Bridge. D-Bridge put me onto that, I think. Um, I was in the market for stuff. He's He's like a real, real synth nerd. He loves... He just knows a lot about synths. I think he's he's really uh, synth wise, shall I say? And so he kind of put me into that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he's an incredible the guy Debridge. Um, I loved his autonomic podcast, the autonomic stuff he yeah. did. That was incredible. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Kid Drama, Bodico, man. The, the the three of them, you know, they yeah, they they really provided something very different, um, which is still influential to this day, and there's still people now. Um, making stuff to, which to me sounds just like then <laughs> you know so it's 10 years there's, there's been some great i think they've they've helped to really inspire a lot of people definitely with that definitely it's been what it's been 12 years now probably isn't it so it's uh, 11 12 years yeah it could have been um just to finish up just a couple of quick things if that's cool sure. um yeah i mean <clears throat> you maybe alluded to one there but do you have any uh mentors that you've had throughout your career that have helped you or mm. Yeah, provided support. Yeah, many, many. Yeah, I I sort of think of them almost like fathers, you know, um, in some sense. I think, uh, many, how long have you got? Right. <laughs> so, okay, I'll keep it to creative. So, you know, Brian Eno, a uh, bit of a cliche as well, but, but I think he's really important. And um, I share a lot of his kind of wisdom through my education stuff I do. I think... Um, gone for ages I, I, you know just the idea of the, from the oblique strategies to creating the idea of ambient music to what he does um with his av stuff and how he and how he's actually able to describe his process i think is one of the main things for me he's he's just so keyed into like knowing exactly what he's doing um that it, what he's doing isn't some sort of mystery for himself but then there's still uh the joy of discovery and trying new things with that which i think is a really powerful combination of things um, so the sort of like sense of self and then a sense of adventure at the same time um, I think he's great uh, but in terms of other producers I guess I mean man so many people I think you know Debridge for sure has been hugely influential for me in recent years people like Madlib, Darbury, Flying Lotus, Hudson Mohawk back in the zeros I mean untold amount of hardcore and jungle producers um, one of my favorite engineers was a guy called Nico, and No U Turn Records was a big thing for me in, in my oh, teenage yeah. years. Yeah, I have a couple of those yeah. on that label. Yeah, Nico, you know, he came from a kind of uh, more of a rock engineering background, and kind of what he did with Ed Rush and Trace, you know, there would be no Ed Rush and Optical without that guy, you know. And I think, um, yeah, you know, the, in the garage side of things, you know, man, so many people like, um, but in terms of what did you say, you were picking more of like, of like, very key people right like yeah but maybe people that have come into come to your life um yeah and just sort of 
I don't know, shown you something or helped you through? I've been kind of solo, man, to be honest with you. But I think... Um... One of the, so yeah, my mate Ian, he's he's a a very knowledgeable guy. I think like so for a while I was involved with a group that were um signed to Excel and we were gigging and stuff. They're called um various production. So we I was part of the band, so I was doing kind of scratching and cuts and stuff and sound effects and stuff mm-hmm. as part of the live live show. And Ian was one of the main brains at the time who was the main producer for that outfit and um he showed me a lot. You know, back back in those days, I was kind of making fairly ropey hip hop beats and trying to record rappers on them and stuff. And some of that stuff came out. You know, there was, I did an album with Dudley Perkins, who's um, uh, an original Stones Throw guy, one of Mad Lib's old crew. But um, yeah, so Ian was in the same studio building as me, and he helped me a lot to sort of understand how to really kind of mix and master and kind of um, e- just EQ and compression, really, just those basics. But I started to get a real handle on it and uh he's now uh he has a great really quite successful in a way uh no actually successful in their own right they do their own thing they're, they're an english folk band who have really shook up i think the folk scene in the uk they're called stick in the wheel cool. um and he's the main guitarist for that band but he also has you know he does his beats and stuff he's got a project called goals um it's a great kind of like instrumental hip-hop type thing and so he has been really key um but other than that, man, I think my school art teacher probably, Mister Mister Wallace, big up Mister Wallace, because he, I, I didn't, I never liked doing sports, so he used to take, he got um, us got to get permission instead of doing sports when we were doing A levels to go to his mate's studio, and he let us kind of like smoke fags and sit around and look, you know, have a, just be shown how a mixing desk would work, and it was like wow, that was a huge nice. thing. Um, yeah, my school music teacher was really good as well. Um, so th- those sort of people. But if I'm honest, like, it's hard to sort of think in a way. In in a way, it's pe- just people I'm close to, man. Like my friends, my partners, you know, people I've been with over the years. And, you know, um, I've always played a huge part in what I do artistically. It's just close friends and conversations and stuff like that, you know. Um, I haven't really had many encounters with, like, major cultural figures that have somehow taken me under their wing or, you know, uh, anything like that. Um if anything, I've just learned from from reading and, and observing stuff and, and, you know, interviews, I guess, like this, you know, like, uh, yeah, the Red Bull Academy was quite a big thing, though, you know, seeing like... Yeah, that was in Madrid, right? Yeah, you know, like, I got to ask MF Doom a question, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, Erica Bardu was there, um, you know, it was uh, eye-opening, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think also just peers in music, man. I mean, you know, uh, some of my closer friends in music, you know, Charlie Fracture, Sam Binger, um, people like D-Bridge, you know, m- my friends, Danny Skrilla, more sounds, some people on my label that I've worked with. My manager, I have a manager, Mark Mark Shelley, who's been with me almost from, since day one. Um, he's helped me run my label. He ran the first label that I did my first album, As On Unit On. Um Oh man, there's a lot of people because you know, twenty years or so, I could go through peeps. Mm. But yeah, uh, that's great, man. I really yeah. like that you you sort of yeah, also listing like friends and 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 you know people you've been in relationships with uh, amongst them. Um, because yeah, that's all. Of course. Uh, yeah, that's all yeah. part of it, isn't it? You know, it isn't. Um, yeah, like you can get the best production. You can get the best production tips off someone who knows their stuff, but it might not help you when you. are <laughs> Yeah, you know what? You might have you might have the best side chain, but then you know, play it to your partner, play it to a loved one. Do they like it? Because you know, 
that's kind of what matters. It's like they they're gonna they're gonna tell you probably what most of your like producer pals, assuming your partner isn't also a producer, but mm. you know your producer pals are gonna pick up on some stuff, but they can overlook just the vibe or like how it feels or whether it's a bit long or boring or you know that I find that's you know that's the most terrifying but the most valid valuable and valid yeah of sort of uh, advice you can get sometimes you know definitely if your mum likes it then you're really (laughs) 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 you you know like my dad I I played um, my dad listened to acid dub studies and he was like this is amazing and like my dad's like 74 wow you know what does he know about acid well he's got great taste (laughs) <laughs> i just you know it was surprising that's awesome man so yeah that's great yeah i think that's that's what's important i think um i don't know there's so many people that just just yeah people give me you know i've had studio access from people who just let me borrow their studio or whatever over the years and all those people are really valuable too nice. but yeah awesome well uh yeah it's been a real pleasure to speak to you today jim likewise mate yeah thanks yeah. for sorry for the technical difficulties in the beginning it's fine, man. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> We're all doing everything we can over the internet, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed your music. And I, lo- I know a lot of people do. Um, and a lot of people have respect for the way that you, uh, yeah, put yourself out there and, and, and make whatever, whatever suits your feeling or your creative energy. Well, if it inspires other people to think the same way or try it for themselves, then that's great, you know. Um, it's good for your health. So, yeah, try it. Excellent. Yeah. Nice one, man. Nice one. Thanks, thank, and thank you for having me on. And um, thanks for anyone listening who's still listening to me rabbit on for after two and a quarter hours. Um, and yeah, and I really appreciate it, Chris. And um, good luck with the podcast, man. Oh, what a pleasure it was to speak with Jim. Um, he's a really, really nice guy. And um, yeah, the work he's done in community music, I never even knew about. So. Yeah, he's clearly an amazingly talented producer, but also someone who cares about society, cares about people. Uh, I think that's reflected reflected in our in the discussions, really. You know, there were a few discussions there that are not easy topics to talk about, but it's great to draw attention to them, and it's great to have ongoing uh, dialogue around them. Okay, on the show next time, we've got a female producer uh, called Emma, who is not only a very, very talented musician, producer and composer, she's also absolutely hilarious. And um, yeah, it's a really, really fun conversation with Emma. Uh, Tune into that one. That's coming out next week. Um, Thank you very much for listening once again. I really appreciate it. Uh, Look after each other. Look after yourselves. And we will rendezvous in one week's time. See you soon.